0: Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. This is the second of two episodes this summer devoted to what you might call the mysticism of pop music. Longtime listeners will recall that we performed this experiment once before in episodes 27 and 28 of the podcast. The idea then and now was for Phil and I to each pick two pieces of music that spoke to us, give them a listen, and then have a discussion. In the last episode, Love, Death, and the Dream Life, we talked about Nina Simone's version of James Shelton's Lilac Wine and Ghostface Killah's Underwater. Today, our focus is on Radiohead's Pyramid Song from the 2001 album Amnesiac and Fran Landisman and Tommy Wolfe's Ballad of the Sad Young Men from the 1959 Broadway musical The Nervous Set. Astute listeners will see in the title we chose for this episode, The Pit and the Pyramid, a play on the famous Edgar Allan Poe short story The Pit and the Pendulum, first published in 1842. While that story doesn't come up in the conversation you're about to hear, a few words on it are, I think, in order, since it shares the central theme of our conversation, namely existential despair, or what Phil called the philosopher's blues in a recent essay. Poe's story is well known. A man is imprisoned by the Spanish Inquisition. We never learn the nature of his crimes, but his judges have deemed them serious enough to warrant a particularly sadistic form of execution. Strapped to a table, the prisoner is forced to watch as a great scythe swings on a pendulum above him, descending one step lower with each swing. Up on the ceiling, beyond the blade, is an image of Saturn, Father Time. Poe is presenting us here with a truly hopeless scenario, a fate from which there seems no possibility of escape. But then, spoiler alert, a miracle occurs at the last possible moment, and the prisoner is saved. I guess something like that also happens in today's episode. By the way, that essay by Phil, The Philosopher's Blues, is available to patrons who choose to support our show on Patreon at the Reader's or Listener's Tiers. For just a few bucks a month, you too could get access to The Philosopher's Blues and a wealth of other exclusive material, including, at the Listener's Tier, bonus episodes released every other week. We invite you to visit our Patreon if you haven't already, And consider supporting the work we do. It is no exaggeration to say that this podcast wouldn't be possible at this point without our patrons. And if you're feeling you need even more Weird Studies in your life, check out the new Weird Studies community on reddit.com. In just five weeks, it's become a real meeting place for the weirdly inclined, and we'd love to see you there. Okay, on with episode 80, The Pit and the Pyramid, or How to Beat the Philosopher's Blues. This one was a real experience for us, and we hope it'll be one for you too. Enjoy the show. Continuing our foray into pop music. Yup. The second song I chose is a song by Radiohead called Pyramid Song from their album Amnesiac. When did that come out? Like 2006? 2001. Whoa! 2003. No, 2003 was uh, Held to the Thief. So yeah, 2001. Wow. Something like that. Um, You're getting old, JF. Yeah.
1: Almost 20 years ago. This is what happens when you have kids, is the shit that you were listening to before you had kids, it's like you've entered a time warp, and then you basically think that that stuff is contemporary. Oh, they just released (laughs) that. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Very, I was like, I got to pick a recent one. (laughs) It's
1: 20 years ago.
0: (laughs) This is a classic. Yeah. So, but, um, you know. If
1: if, If this was a person, it would be going to college in the fall. Oh, jeez. I like Radiohead. I'm a big fan of Radiohead. Me too. Yeah. They're fucking awesome. Kid A is one of my favorite records in anything that could be described as rock. Same here. I fucking love that album. I like Amnesiac a lot. And apparently Kid A and Amnesiac were recorded at the same session. But Yeah, they were. Um, but they're totally different. It's weird. They have a really different
0: kind of vibe. They do. Indeed. I do see them as complementing one another, but you're right. There's a turn in Amnesiac. They're concept albums, you know? Uh, We don't want to talk too much about that, but- uh, But a little bit. Tom York, I think, dedicated Kid A to the first human clone whom he assumed existed already in 2001 when he released that album. He's like, this person exists somewhere and this album is devoted to them. Probably lives in a lab somewhere. Deep Underground, the first human clone. A
1: Stranger yeah. Things.
0: And that's Kid A. So Kid A being a reference, I'm assuming, to Adam Cadman, the first human, the first, the son of man, the first human created by humans. Like the, the thing is that it's talking about the first person. And Amnesiac, I've always assumed or conjectured that Amnesiac also starts with an A. And it's a reference to this, this, uh, this character being without a past, being this kind of like a historic being who just lands in our world. But that has nothing to do with Pyramid Song, which is a, a song that stands on its own. I chose the song because it's weird on multiple levels. There's a an exotic feel to it. It draws on our Western idea of the East a little bit. There's a little moment in the song line, the line without words you know, the ooh, 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 at the end of that line, yeah. there's a little... Yeah.
1: The melisma. Yeah,
0: right. Melisma. I never knew what those were called. At the end of the mm. melisma, there's a little interval there that's, I don't know if it's a Phrygian or Dorian or some Greek it mode. Is,
1: it is Phrygian. Ha!
0: Phrygian uh, uh, moment there that really evokes the idea of pyramids in the East, to me at least.
1: I've got I've got my melodica here. Oh,
0: perfect. So,
1: like, that's the tonic or, like, home pitch. And, you know, normally we would expect the pitch right above it to be, like if I was playing a major scale. But with this, a Phrygian scale that second note above the tonic is flattened. Right. And that little turn around the tonic, which you hear all over the place, is like, uh, that's a mark, that's a sonic marker. We were just talking about this in the last show, about sonic markers of otherness.
0: Right. This is one of them. Correct, exactly, to us, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another uh, way in which uh, Tom York draws on other cultures of music in this is the song's affinity with um African American spirituals yeah he was inspired to write it he said by Charles Mingus's song freedom which is on i think it's on the Mingus 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 album um the last song where there's this this kind of chant like na 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 and then a hand clap na 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 like that, and uh, Mm. he said that the song was based on that. I didn't, I don't see that resemblance. When you listen carefully, you can kind of hear it. But that inspiration kind of frames the tune for me as a kind of a song about initiation and a a religious song, okay? So I'm Mm. gonna approach it that way. The, um, Mm. The first line, jumped in the river, what did I see, is a line that could come out of a black spiritual, right? It evokes the idea of the river, of baptism, of initiation. But I'll get back to that, because first I wanted to talk just a little bit about the music itself, and I'm sure you'll have something to say about this. Um, As a former drummer, I was really interested in the time signature of this song when I first listened to it, but I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. It's really hard. hard until I looked at the score and saw that it was in 4-4, the most basic standard time signature for pop music. The only thing is that the chords change at weird times, and the melody right. ri- sits weirdly. They're tied. They're tied over and barred in weird ways. Exactly. And the beat is a swing beat, but you can't know that until it kicks in in the second verse, and you're like, "Oh, it's a swing," but there's no indication of that before because you're not hearing the. Because the, the dr- all you hear is the piano. Exactly. gives the song a weird kind of otherworldly feel it really puts you in the mind of something uh, supernatural otherworldly a kind of journey into another world and of course the lyrics reflect that and it's at that to that level I think that the, there's a perfect kind of marriage of lyric and, and and music in this the song has a pyramidal shape it crescendos it ascends and the lyric describes an ascent an ascension of the soul The song is is an account of ascent. Specifically, it's a beautiful summation of the classic Neoplatonic myth of ascent that Plato inaugurates in the Phaedrus with his idea of the the soul charioteer. The soul is a charioteer that that guides his chariot up towards the realm of forms. And of course, uh, I guess what should be said here is that Plato got this idea of the ascension of the soul. That wasn't something that was... Greek. It was something he brought into. Uh, he probably got it from Pythagoras, who probably got it from the Egyptians or from the Persians. But the idea of the soul going up after death was new to the Greeks at that time. Plato brings this into the do- into the conversation into the culture. Um, before that, in Homer, for instance, uh, death is always down. You know, <laughs> like the dead go down into the under the ground. After Plato, there is this tradition of thinking of death as an ascent, or potentially death as a potential ascent outside the world of manifestation and phenomena towards the one, towards the forms. One example of this myth of ascent in the literature is in Plutarch, in his dialogue on the delays of divine vengeance. And I owe my, um, my discovery of this dialogue to Earl Fontenelle of the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, which I highly recommend to everybody. Super podcast. Yeah, super. The guy is brilliant. So anyways, in Plutarch, in this dialogue, which is devoted to explaining or answering the question, why don't the gods punish the wicked immediately? Why do they wait 30 years to deal out their bad karma? And by that time, the wicked have forgotten what they did wrong. And the those who've, been, who've suffered because of them get no solace or satisfaction from their punishment. And the whole dialogue is, is about how to resolve this weird question. How can the gods be just and how, why do they delay their vengeance? And the, uh, this account of ascent comes in as a way to, uh, at the end of the dialogue, as a way to answer this question. By showing that the world is so much more complicated and strange uh, that it seems to us, in our day-to-day lives. We can only answer the question of divine justice once we take into account these other realms that are always intersecting with ours. The account is the story that one of the interlocutors in the dialogue heard about a man called Phispecius of Soli, or Soli. And Phispecius was a wicked, debauched lecher who lived a horrible life and squandered his fortune until the day he fell from a precipice and died. Three days later, as they were about to bury him, he suddenly came to again with this crazy story about what he'd seen on the other side. And from then on, he lived the life of a holy man. People who are interested in NDEs, modern near-death experiences, they'll see that resonance there, that to this day, NDEs often result in radical transformations of personality often for the better, sometimes for the worse, but it often is the case that uh, you'll hear that in the literature, in, the par- in paranormal literature, you'll hear about a selfish lawyer who had a, a near-death experience and then became a kind of saint afterwards. So that's still part of the, the whole kind of narrative around near-death experiences. But then Thespesius describes what he saw on the other side and the parallels between what he saw and this song by Radiohead are, I think, kind of uncanny. Um, and I'll give you some examples. Uh, so Thespesius talks about what happened after he fell from the precipice and hit his head. He is reported as uh, describing how, when his sense first left his body, it seemed to him as if he'd been some pilot flung from the helm by the force of a storm into the midst of the sea. Jumped in the river, what did I see? Afterwards, rising up again above water by degrees, so soon as he thought he had fully recovered his breath he looked about him every way as if one eye of his soul had been opened. But he beheld nothing of those things which he was wont formerly to see. Only he saw stars of a vast magnitude at an immense distance from one another and sending forth a light most wonderful for the brightness of its color, which shot itself out in length with an incredible force on which the soul riding as it were a chariot was most swiftly yet as gently and smoothly dandled from one place to another. So he's basically coming into a place where these stars, moon full of stars and astral cars, astral cars being these souls being riding on chariots really fast to and fro across this landscape. Then he says, uh, Tom York writes, all my lovers were there with me. And, and there is a moment in this uh, dialogue where Thespesius reports that of these souls, he knew not who for the most part were only perceiving two or three of his acquaintance, he endeavored to approach and discourse with them. He sees people from his past, he talks to. And then, of course, all my past and futures. Tom York's narrator sees his future and his past, and that comes into play. He see, like, the soul of the um relives his past, but also hears of all his potential futures when he encounters what Plutarch calls the Oracle of the Night and the Moon, which is a very interesting thing. But I'll leave that aside for now. But orbiting around the moon in the other world is a woman, a Sybil, who in a shrill voice sings of future events. And when Thespesius encounters her, he hears about his future. She describes his future to him. And in the end of the song, of course, Tom York's narrator ascends in a little rowboat to heaven. And uh, the whole point of the other world, of the whole of the afterlife process for Plutarch is to purify the soul as it ascends to the one. And of course, um, Tom York ends up in a place where he says, There was nothing to fear, nothing to doubt, which is a beautiful, I think, very simple, very beautiful encapsulation of what gnosis means. Nothing to doubt means you finally have direct knowledge of the one. And yes. nothing to fear means that the object of this knowledge, this ultimate gnosis, is redemptive and it's good. It's good. So, yep. and, But what a dark road there The song is so yeah. dark Black-eyed angels swam with me And there are all these demons that Plutarch's uh, character Encounters on the other side That could be black-eyed angels But the uh, parallels were just so strong for me That I had to bring it up As uh, a modern instance of Neoplatonic <laughs> Gnostic <laughs> thought in pop music uh, Which I don't think Should surprise us all that much When you consider uh, where artists go When they write music But uh, that's why I wanted to bring it up, and that's what makes it weird for me.
1: So the interpretation of this song that you can find pretty easily on, like, fan bulletin boards and stuff, I think Tom York might have even said something about this, uh, but I'm not sure, is that it's called Pyramid Song because it's about the ancient Egyptians and about an ancient Egyptian conception of the passage from this life to the next. Yeah.
0: That doesn't, that doesn't negate what you're saying. But no, I c- it doesn't at all, because the Neoplatonists got their myth of ascent from the Egyptians. Right. Uh, there's very strong evidence for that. So it is an Egyptian myth. It's just that I found the echo of images in Plutarch, but you could probably find it in the Egyptian myth.
1: Now, as somebody who is all about Gnosis, but, you know, at the same time, I don't know if I've ever encountered a realm of forms... I don't know what that would be like. Uh, You got to do some LSD, bud. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, without doing LSD, maybe you could tell us why that particular object of gnosis and not some other one. The doctrine of forms is a pretty solid idea, and I'm certainly not uh, dismissing it. But you got to admit, there's a lot of different ways that people have had of conceptualizing that which is unconceptualizable, of saying that which is unspeakable. I mean, that's what gnosis is, right? So why would we choose this framing as opposed to some other? And there are other framings, even within the Western esoteric tradition. Although I'm going well, to, I, although I am going to grant that Neoplatonism is kind of like the
0: foundation here it is of Western esotericism yeah. and also also we need to put the realm of forms in its proper context in light of Plato's so-called unwritten doctrines which were the key thing for the Neoplatonists the key concept from Plato that the Neoplatonists got is something you find briefly in Plato like in Republic as a moment where you get a sense of it But of course, it's especially it's it's in Aristotle's report, his description of Plato's unwritten teachings, that you get this central core of what Platonism was all about. So the realm of forms needs to be interpreted, I think, at least within the context of Western esotericism, in light of this unwritten teaching. And I don't want to overplay this realm of forms thing. I just, it was shorthand for describing what Plato might have uh, described off the page as the one, right? For Plato, in his unwritten teaching, there is a fundamental one, a God, essentially. He's kind of the lodestone of creation, outside of being. In fact, in Republic, he says that the good, which is another name for the one, the good is beyond being. It doesn't even exist. (laughs) It's beyond being. It's beyond, it has no essence. It's the, the pull of existence itself. It's not an object within existence. So that's what I mean by the ascension of the soul to the realm of forms. The realm of forms is how the one looks to us from here. It's almost like there's a um, a refraction that takes place when we look through our mortal intellect at the one, it refracts into a kind of rainbow of forms. Mm-hmm. But it's the rainbow is the one. It's the good. It's what's beyond. Yeah. And if you frame it that way, it's not, I'm not making an argument that Tom York is backing Plato's theory of forms the way that that theory is portrayed in modern philosophical discourse, which is just one theory amongst others. He's rather, I think, hinting at an intuition that Plato also had when he developed his cosmology. Yeah. And so there's an ascension to the one. You could talk about Egyptian. It's just that I thought the, the similarity of images was most striking in this Plutarch account. Mm. But you could just as well go to Egypt, which is probably where Plato got his quote-unquote religion anyways. Trying to noodle through something here. You know, when
1: I say I'm all about Gnosis, like, that's a flippant way of putting it. As a, a meditator, although these days a pretty shitty and sporadic meditator, but a meditator nonetheless. And, you know, somebody who's sort of trained up in the Zen tradition, right? There's a particular way of framing. What is it that... When we start talking about emptiness, for example, what is it that we mean? And emptiness in Buddhism, I'm speaking very broadly here, is a way of talking about that thing that you can't talk about, effing the ineffable. and. One thing that is always a little bit challenging about talking about gnosis is, you know, which one or talking about enlightenment. I'm not sure I believe in the concept of enlightenment, certainly not as some kind of stage or state that you reach where all contradictions are resolved and you're going to be happy forever. And you've got like, you know, fucking superpowers or something. I don't believe in that. Right. But I do believe that people have non-ordinary experiences all the time mystical experiences of a sort Mm. that William James describes in considerable detail in varieties of religious experience. I don't even think they're that rare. Uh, I don't think you need to be a special sort of person to have them. William James apparently had one when he was out for a walk in the hills and that just changed his whole life. In fact, he tells the story although like coded, like he doesn't say that it was him who experienced it, but he does describe the experience in varieties. But... uh I not only believe in these various experiences people have of that, which goes beyond all language, um, I don't mind saying I've had experiences like that. And again, I don't think that makes you a special sort of person. But something that I think makes the idea of not just like these little Kensho moments, these little insights, but like the capital E Enlightenment idea, what makes it, Challenging is because there are so many different ideas of what that might possibly mean. Mm. Um, There was... uh, I once read about or heard a podcast about some scientific... some kind of neuroscientific thing where they were trying to figure out what are people talking about when they talk about states of illumination or awakening or enlightenment, and they tried to narrow it down to like, you know, a list of things that are common across all traditions and they just couldn't do it. Uh, which is disturbing from a certain point of view, because if you really believe that there is one final foundational truth that all mystics at all times and all places have been privy to, that would seem to indicate that maybe that isn't the case. Nevertheless, when I read mystics of whatever tradition talking about whatever it is they're trying to convey— I do always have this weird feeling of like, yeah, I kind of know what you're talking about. Like, you kind of get the feeling, I mean, to use your prism metaphor, that, you know, we are all prisms, and the light is going to come through a different color through each of us. And we're all arguing. Exactly. So we're, it's like, well, my, I'm, mine's purple. Why Why is yours orange? I don't get it.
0: Totally, you know? totally. I'm
1: not sure that I can ever reconcile the conflict between the many and the one philosophically on that. And in states of gnosis, you realize that all such discussions of the many and the one are ridiculous. All discussions of... Free will and predetermination, ridiculous, because you are in some kind of zone, call it the realm of forms, if you like, where there is nothing to fear, nothing to doubt, where all oppositions are not so much resolved as you simply are beyond them. And where there is no gainsaying the experience, because it's not even an experience in the normal sense, where, you know, I could have a hot flash and I could be deceived as to thinking, that uh, the temperature in the room suddenly got hot, but maybe I just blushed. I got really embarrassed, and I blushed, and I felt hot, right? I could be mistaken about sense data. But, you know, Gnosis, you have this absolute conviction that there's no mistaking what it is that you see. Yeah, even putting it that way makes it too subjective. Absolutely, yeah. I'm fucking it up. As, As the words are coming out of my
0: mouth, I'm getting pissed off, you know? And that's inevitable, right? It's inevitable. It's not a conviction, Yes. It's a an initiation, yes. it's a transformation. You know, I could try to cite instances in my own life where I felt that way. I don't know. Then of course there's the question of well was it genuine? Was it you know, we well, we don't know that either. We just It's not um, about opinions. I'll tell you
1: that. It's not like yeah. you have an opinion. But it's, then yeah. but then the tr- the trick is also that like you can't take a picture. You know, you can't take a selfie in emptiness, no, or, or in the realm of forms. Uh, once, <laughs> once you're not there, that's just a story you're telling yourself or telling other people to try and impress them with how spiritual you are. Um, but
0: yeah, but nevertheless, I think that we have to recognize, especially having gone through the ringer now for a hundred years with postmodernism and and uh, the whole philosophies of suspicion that have dominated the West now for well over a hundred years. Yeah. Um, I think we have to admit that without some kind of postulate of that type, I'm not talking about actual experience, I'm just talking about how we talk about the world. Right, right. Without postulating some ground that is beyond being in some way, as Plato says in The the Republic, your philosophical discourse is so profoundly impoverished that it eventually just collapses into semantics and nonsense. Yep. Yep. Which is why for the ancient philosopher, and this is something that uh, Ado and another gentleman whose book, whose name I forget now, um, I think is Serbian. Uh, oh yeah, that, I
1: can never remember that dude's
0: name. I know who you're talking about. about. Philosophy is a Rite of Rebirth, is his book. According to them, to be a philosopher, <laughs> there's a buy-in, there's an initiation, there's something that we all have to agree with before we could even begin to do philosophy, And um, the game we've been playing in the West for two and three hundred years now is uh, a game. It's not it's 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 not about wisdom. It's not about wisdom, which is it's not about rebirth and it's not about transformation. And it's also kind of just uh, dancing around. It's just
1: moving counters around in a glass bead game.
0: And it knows it. Somehow it knows it. When are we going to realize that you can't put all philosophies on the same plane? That when philosophy was born in India, in China, in Greece, it came with a certain insight, a certain gnosis. You said it could happen to anybody. I think it happens to everyone. I think it's a gnosis we all somehow have already. Which is why Plato always talks in terms of a return to the truth. Yeah. You know, a- anamnesis is a return to the truth. Because
1: it's very damn simple. It's the simplest damn thing. And yet it's inexpressible. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's revealed in pleonastic phrases like I am that I am.
0: Right. Which, I mean, yeah, I get it. But try to explain it, and of course, it breaks apart in your hands. Yep. You know, just it's like clay, a piece of clay that just comes apart when you. You touch know, it. I'm
1: glad that you mentioned the nihilism of postmodern thought, the sad endgame of humanism that Taylor describes as the imminent counter enlightenment. I'm glad you mentioned that because you know, there's an essay that I wrote for the Patreon folks a while ago, early actually, in our Patreon, called "The Philosopher's Blues," and in it I talked about my own experience of being kind of tormented by some fucked up thoughts that you tend to get when you're in the intellectual game and the academic game. When you think too much and think too much about thinking and thinking about thinking about thinking, etc., that kind of involutional and self-reflexive style of thought.
0: Yeah, kind of like... um Uh, Mental anemia that sets in, where like the yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, the nutrients are sapped out constantly from your thoughts and they become so brittle and so, yeah, um, or
1: to put it another way, it's like an autoimmune disorder, yeah, where your immune system doesn't work properly, it's attacking your
0: system, yeah,
1: yeah. I I really like the idea of Slaughter Dykes that immunology is like the most important science to emerge in the last 200 years, because for him, he's thinking of immunology in uh, a very broad sense of basically that which defines an individual. Yeah. That which defines an organism from its environment or from other organisms. Exactly.
0: It sets the perimeter and the membrane of a a discrete individual. It's like what makes it different from the rest. So it's inevitably an immunological kind of concept because your individuality is partially determined by what you keep out of you, uh, yeah, biologically, exactly. psychologically, spiritually, et cetera. Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. And once you start playing with
1: ideas that like nothing means anything or that meaning is only a projection onto the universe by this, you know, fatally narcissistic species, homo sapiens, uh, or that the meaning of something can only ever be in relation to some other meaning but my point of all of this is that that is like bad for your boundaries because once you start letting that shit in there's no reason to articulate any privileged sense of interiority, any yeah. particular sense of self, or that, for that matter, any sense of an exterior that might have some claim on you. It becomes a kind of dismal solipsism. You find yourself, as I wrote in that essay, like a ghost in your own life, right? unable to touch or move anything. It's fucking awful. And let me tell you, you know, when I started to meditate, low these many years ago, I was going through a spasm of... Well, I mean, like I've been real on this show about the fact that I get like periods of depression and shit. And that doesn't have to do with fucking postmodernism or whatever. That's just, you know, my wiring. But I was going through a period of time that was kind of dark. And it was dark partly because like I was getting them philosophers blues all over again. You know, that feeling that your life is somehow derealizing before your eyes. And I remember when I started meditating, suddenly just realizing, oh... Reality just is what it is. Right. And all these fucking opinions that then takes that people have, it actually convinced me for a while, I think erroneously, that philosophy was lock, stock and barrel, total bullshit. Um, Obviously, I don't think that now because I'm on an arts and philosophy podcast, but I was inclined to paint with a broad brush for a while because I realized how much people are seduced by their ideas, by their thoughts, and by other people's ideas, really. And uh, seduced from that one thing needful, that extraordinarily simple thing that can never be put into words, but that feeling that you get in those rare and precious moments where phrases like, I am that I am, or as I just said, reality is what it is all of a sudden make a whole lot of sense. Uh, Whatever may be said about my life since then, I will say, you know, you were talking about how people who have NDEs sometimes will have like a 180 degree personality change when they come out of it, like their whole life changes. Mm -hmm. Like in a lot of ways, my life now is continuous with what it was before I started meditating. But I will tell you that that put paid to that shit forever.
0: Right. The philosopher's blues. Right. And I remember the moment where I was able to transcend the Philosopher's Blues as well. Uh, It's almost kind of become a rite of passage. Once you you embark on the task of thinking, once you make thinking your kind of life's work, as I guess we have in a way, um, you're going to have to go through that. Because the the, the real danger in immunology is the perfect metaphor uh, or analogy, I guess, or even, I don't even think it is an analogy. I think it's exactly what we're talking about, is that once you've um, bought into the claim that there is no ground. You are. Uh, I think you've said this uh, more or less already in what you were saying there. You become uh, very susceptible and vulnerable to uh, ideological possession of all kinds of ways, and you become essentially an instrument of whatever epistem you happen to live under. You become a representative of whatever opinions happen to be dominant in your little neck of the woods, and so to develop. An interiority, which means to develop a center from which you can think in your own name is already to buy into a vision of life and reality that modernity tells us doesn't obtain. So just the fact of having a soul is a kind of act of rebellion today, if we consider the dominant epistemologies that are at play in our world. Yeah. And I want to just pick up on what you were saying about you feel like a ghost when you're living like this. Uh, this is something that I'm, I, it's something I've tried to use in different contexts. In the post-mortem chapter, the last chapter of Reclaiming Art, I talk about spectrality as a kind of the modern condition, that we are, in a sense, specters. That comes up again in a piece I wrote for um, Canadian Notes and Queries earlier this year. I put a a longer draft of it. On the Patreon recently, called Extinction and Mystery, and it's about all this. It basically comes from this sudden insight I got years ago that that we are already dead and we are ghosts. That we in the we live after the apocalypse. Fukuyama was right. History did end at some point, way before uh, the time he 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 located the end of history. I think it, it ended in a way at Hiroshima, although the death throes had been going on for some time already at that point. And I tried to kind of work this idea out for myself in a a little text, and I thought maybe I'd read a little bit of it. Um, This wasn't intended to be shown, but um, it's just notes to myself. When I say that the world has already ended, I don't intend it as a historical claim, as if the world actually ended and we live in some kind of matrix facsimile or something like that. But I don't mean it as a metaphor either. It comes down to how we define world and dead. What I mean by world in this context is an idea of the world without which the world would not cohere for us as a world. And what I mean by dead hinges on an idea of life without which life would not appear to us as life. So we're talking ideas, we're talking epistemology. So am I just saying that a certain idea of the world and a certain idea of life have come to apply to reality such that we are now living in a different world from the one we think we live in? I thought it all ended there for some time and still think that in a certain sense, that's sort of true. But really this take doesn't do the intuition justice any more than a literal or metaphorical interpretation would. So on with the qualifying. It isn't that a certain idea of life and world have become obsolete. It is that our idea of life and world have death baked into them. It's not that our ideal world and our ideal life were once viable and are now obsolete. Rather, it's that our idea of the world is of a world that has already ended and our idea of life is of a life that has already passed. We are ghosts and this, the world Mm. in which we have castellated ourselves is Hades. What I mean is that this is, goes back to the idea of extinction, which we've brought up before, and Garmin Bosia, your thunk, your arrow at the end of your the, the sudden end of time that doesn't just put an end to our current existence, but is so final that it retroactively erases our existence from the record. It's like we never existed at all. This idea, which is inevitable if you just take secular modernity on the face of it, if you just buy it wholesale... We are already extinct. Uh, Ray Brassier, in his book *Neil Unbound*, goes at great length to describe how we are already, logically, in the logic of philosophy, in the space of pure logic, we are already extinct. Because no matter what, the universe will collapse, and everything will go back to nothing. And we are essentially already there in thought. We are already dead. And that kind of trajectory from saying there is no fundamental ground outside of being, uh, to there is, we are already dead, we're already ghosts, is inevitable. It's a logical leap that is already made once you've said there's no ground. So that's why I think the world we've built since the Second World War looks like former depictions of hades and the bardo realms and all that it's vast spaces impersonal spaces dancing lights constant interpolations from uh luminous uh signs that float around us think of Times square think of the internet we live in a world that we have decorated as though it were a kind of hades a kind of bardo realm and um that's what we have to deal with. And we can't talk about climate change or all the other problems until we've dealt with that problem, that we are already dead, that we are already ghosts, you know?
1: Yeah. I'm not sure I want to tell this story. I, I will at least tell it to you, JF, because you're my friend and not, maybe not to our listening audience. I don't know. I, I can I can, can decide, decide later. later. Yeah. Um, my dad was the original dude with Philosopher's Blues. Like, my dad was actually, you know, a philosophy professor. And I'm not going to, you know, talk a lot about his life, uh, where his unhappinesses came from. But he was an unhappy guy. And he had a lot of things to be unhappy about. But I'm pretty sure that one thing that just gnawed at him was exactly the spiritual condition that we're talking about, that feeling that we're already dead, uh, that you are a ghost and the haunted house that you live in is what you are pleased to call your life. And so he died in 1998. And every now and then I have dreams of him. And every great while... I have a dream where I know that he's not a representation in my head. I know I'm actually being visited by him.
0: Right. That right.
1: we're talking. You know. So this is one of those dreams, and this was ages ago. This was right around the time I'm talking about when I started meditating and I start and I, you know, whatever else has continued to go in my li- on in my life since then, at least clarified that 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 I'm not a ghost. Um, And it's kind of funny, I guess I was talking to my dad's ghost. In the dream, this didn't seem strange to me. I knew he was gone. I mean, like, it wasn't like one of those dreams where you're back with somebody who's long departed and you never question that in the dream. Like, in the dream, I understood that he's gone and I'm talking to my departed father. And my dad, in my dream, was still just a profoundly sad man. And he was talking about fixing something, I forget what. And he says, uh, like, like he's talking about like a, a, a service shop, a, like a fix-it shop in, that he found in the old pages. Like, yeah, hey, I think they can fix it. And he says this in this kind of ironic way that my dad had, where you realize he's not talking about just like a watch or something. He's talking about like this Philosopher's Blues, this tremendous and bottomless sadness. I knew in the dream that that's what he was talking about, and I wanted to tell him about how I'd start meditating and like, hey, I'm a Buddhist and so on. And in my dream, I'm very aware that my dad fucking hated religion, fucking hated it. You never met a more furious, um, like, anti-theist, not just atheist, but anti-theist. Like, like, hit my dad's positions basically God doesn't exist and he's an asshole.
0: Right. And...
1: <laughs> Yeah, And so in my dream, I'm thinking, I don't want dad to get me wrong here and think that like, I'm like um, some naive proselytizer, you know, talking about the good news of Jesus Christ and, right. and so on, because uh, my dad doesn't give a shit about that kind of stuff. And that's not what I'm talking about anyway. And in my dream, I'm struggling to articulate this. And I just kind of want to say, there's good news, dad. But the best I could do is to say the good news is that there's good news. Right. But I couldn't say anything more than that. But that's kind of... And once again, the shit falls apart in my hands. I don't know how to express this, and you just end up with these kind of like ouroboros um, like utterances, the snake that's eating its own tail. You know, the good news is that there's good news. yeah. That's what I try to articulate to my dad in the dream, like you don't have to be a slave to this terrible insomnia of the mind, insomnia of the intellect. But in my dream, my dad's like, well, I'm glad you found something that works for you.
0: Hmm. This reminds me of a, a good friend of mine who suffers from bipolar disorder, like really bad. He had some really intense episodes. He was in the depths. At one point, he was so deep. um, He was in the hospital, I think. And he was so, so deep in it that he couldn't even imagine death as being a release from the torment that he was enduring. Jesus Christ. He's like, I could kill myself and that would just make it worse. So, and he's told me exactly the same thing. He said, the way I got out of it I I didn't have hope. I couldn't see it, but I knew that hope existed. And he said, if I could just remember that hope exists, then I can do this. And that's what slowly, like slowly over time, allowed him to climb out of that abyss. And it's funny because... There's an intellectual move involved there. It's not just an emotional, oh, I feel good. But you, you have to do the thinking. You have to remember. You have to think. And it's, maybe it's at that point the thought becomes real. The thought becomes a matter of life and death. It's when you have to think your way towards what would be a, a feeling that you don't have right now, a feeling that it's worth going on. Yeah. And that's the situation we've been put in, in this world. That's the cross we've been asked to carry, to bear in the modern world. And, uh, you know, so I, I, that's a very, very poignant story you told. It's really powerful because it, it's, I mean, it's personal, but it's also profoundly universal. This is kind of the issue. And now let's talk about the depressing song. (laughs) 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 All the sad young men. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny.
1: I was like, before we got going, I was like, yeah, let's do Amnesiac first so we can depress the shit out of everybody with Ballad of the Sad Young Men. Um, But in a way, also, everything that we've been saying is the perfect setup to this song. It's true. And none none of this was planned. This is one of those things where, like... You improvise a structure that is better for your purposes than anything you could have composed with, like, minute calculation. So, yeah, Ballad of the Sad Young Men is from a now-forgotten off-off-Broadway musical called The Nervous Set. And this was composed by a guy named Tommy Wolfe, and the lyrics are by a woman named Fran Landesman. And Fran Landesman is, I think, well worth paying attention to as somebody who I think you could think of as... A member of the beat scene, at least if we understand beat in a kind of more expansive way than just Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs. This emergent hipster literary scene centered around New York City that really starts popping around 1948. I wrote about this tons in my book, Dig, Sound and Music and Hip Culture, which if you're interested in this kind of intellectual history that I'm talking about, that's kind of I guess that would be the book to read, or at least it would be a book to read. But Jay Landisman was a hot, up and coming, like ambitious, would be intellectual and literary man who came from St. Louis to New York after World War II. And he and his wife, Fran, were making the scene in. New York City, late forties, hanging out with Bohemians. They knew the Beats. They also, you know, like Marshall McLuhan was a habitué of their circle. Wow, people, people like Seymour Krim, who's a, another Beat, who is not nearly as well known as he should be. It's a very interesting time. Chandler Brossard, uh, a minor but important American writer. That's another one. G. Lannisman is one of those people who kind of had more talent for knowing people and throwing good parties than he did really as a writer. But one of his great ambitions was to have a little magazine because little magazines like small press, avant-garde publications on the arts, that was like the shit in the late 40s. That was like having a podcast, you know? Um, There is this period of time in the beat years, late 40s and 1950s, where... That emergent hip culture that I try to write about in my book, that's where that was happening, in the pages of these little small press mags that would run for a while and then disappear. Landisman published what I think you could say confidently is the first hipster little mag, uh, and it was called Neurotica. This kind of like radical Freudian goof. They actually published a very early essay by Marshall McLuhan called The Psychopathology of Time and Life. Wow. Riffing on Freud's uh, Psychopathology of Daily Life title. Right. Um, And Marshall McLuhan in his pop culture critic era, like back when he was doing stuff for the Mechanical Bride, doing what reads actually is a pretty heavy-handed take on, you know, glossy mags like time and life. Right. Anyway, whatever. That's neither here nor there. The point is that the Landismans were the core of a circle of hipster bohemian intellectual types and the nervous set is based on an unpublished memoir by the landis is That's Minster. the
0: musical, right? The Nervous yeah. Set? Yeah, okay. Yeah,
1: and the Nervous Set was it was created about a decade after the events that it fictionalizes. So there's a bunch of things that happen in this musical comedy, the Nervous Set, that actually are based on things that happened to Landesman and people in his circle. Like, for example, there's this rich dude named Max who's like, I don't know, he's like a brezier manufacturer or something, but he wants to be an avant-garde poet. And so one of these, like, hipster intellectuals is basically stringing him along and teaching him how to write avant-garde poetry and soaking him for his money. Right. That apparently actually happened. It was, I think, Anatole Broyard. Who was doing that anyway? Whatever. It's one of those Romana Clay, yeah, sort of things. It's uh, it's got some funny songs in it. Um, one of Landisman's accomplishments was having a cabaret, and the pianist at that cabaret, Tommy Wolf, wrote the music, and Fran Landisman, Jay Landisman's wife, wrote the lyrics. And those lyrics are so sharp and satiric, and they're like sometimes painfully on point. Fran Landesman was the one with the talent. She was the one with the literary talent, and her preferred medium was these sharp, satirical song lyrics. So this is all a a long-winded way of explaining, you know, what this um, off-off Broadway show was about. It was a show by, for, and of the beats. And also to introduce one of the most important forgotten beats fran landesman kind of want to pay her some respect anyway whatever usually when we talk about these songs i'm always trying to get into the you know the musical stuff i really want to talk about the lyrics mm-hmm. this is a ballad and it's a tough lyric yeah it's tough and i'm going to read it out beginning to end and basically given the conversation we just had about the philosopher's blues i feel like i almost don't need to explain it this is the most beautiful poetic expression of that anomie and s- that sadness under all the partying and all the bohemianism. I'll point out that my dad was a epic partier and bohemian in his day, kind of more in the angry young men of the, the, like the British angry young yeah. men type than in that the American style. Beat yeah, type. Yeah, yeah. More in that style. But this could just be a song about my dad. Uh, Wow, I did not actually even think that until now, and I sure as hell didn't think I was going to go there in this recording, but whatever. And it also, when I heard this song, I was like, holy shit, too real. Like, it just seemed to be a song about me. Right. Uh, At least me in that kind of philosopher's blues phase of my life. But anyway, I'm going to read this. Uh, It starts with a little... Um, tag that isn't part of the song proper. It's funny. It's almost like a verse chorus structure, except the verse is like eight measures long. It's super short. And it just, and it almost sounds like an old school song. Sing a song of sad young men. Yeah. Glasses full of right? I mean, I'm not going to try and, s- I have like five notes that I can sing. <laughs> and <laughs> time I try to sing outside of that tiny range, my voice cracks and I can't sing hold it.
0: Sing a song of sad young men. Glasses full of
1: rye All the news is bad again Kiss your dreams goodbye Um, Sing a song of sad young men, Glasses full of rye, All the news is bad again, Kiss your dreams goodbye. And then the song proper begins. All the sad young men through the town, drinking up the night, trying not to drown. All the sad young men singing in the cold, trying to forget that they're growing old. All the sad young men choking on their youth, trying to be brave, running from the truth. And the second verse, all the sad young men seek a certain smile, someone they can hold for a little while tired little girl does the best she can trying to be gay for a sad young man while a grimy moon watches from above all the sad young men play at making love misbegotten moon shine for sad young men trying to be brave running from the truth and then one of the most beautiful musical things happening in this song happens at the end. There's a kind of a a finale, a coda, a second ending. So this is how the song ends after the second verse. And musically, it's really gorgeous because the vocal line up to this point has been a kind of wavering stepwise line, which vacillates in a way that I find quite beautiful and moving and expressive of the words. You know, this kind of sad weaving motion and we finally break out of this, almost this feeling of like claustrophobia where we're just turning around a narrow set of intervals in this little coda where the vocal line suddenly soars, where we have a leap of an octave and then the leap of a ninth. Let your gentle
0: light guide them home
1: hope or if not hope at least hope for hope an attempt at least to imagine something outside the kind of claustrophobia and insomnia of the condition of the sad young men let your gentle light guide them home again all the sad young men And that last line, All the Sad Young Men, this vocal line that climbs up to the high E-flat. At least it's an E-flat in the sheet music that I'm looking at right here. And like I said, if not hope, then, you know, maybe hope for hope. I hardly need to say this song just pretty much expresses like what the first part of this conversation was trying to express, right?
0: It's so uncanny because it's describing the world from which... The character in Pyramid Song manages to escape. It's a place of fear and doubt. Yep. And fear and doubt dominate. All the news are bad. Even things we were saying in the first part of the conversation, like, for example, at one part she writes, um, knowing neon lights and missing all the stars. yeah. Uh, that's what I was talking about with this exactly. living in the realm of the dead, the neon lights, and we're not seeing the stars. That's an actual literal part of being modern in a city is that you don't see the stars, but you're surrounded by lights that are manufactured to either allow you to circulate like street lights, or that uh, make some kind of uh, demand on you to try to sell you something or move you in a certain direction. And then, of course, at the moon, the moon at the end. And the moon prefigures in both the Plutarch dialogue that I was talking about and also in the song Pyramid Song, A Moon Full of Stars. The moon is somehow posited in this song as an object outside this whole kind of rigmarole of suffering that can somehow maybe draw these men up towards it, draw, guide them home. You know, in a little rowboat to the place where there's nothing to fear, nothing to doubt. In a weird yeah. way, the two songs work together. So strange to see that now. It didn't occur to me at all until now.
1: So odd, because like each of us chose a song. So JF chose Pyramid Song. I chose this song. And each of us had our own shtick. We had our own material we were going to bring in. And we didn't consult about it at all. And yet somehow we managed to end up choosing songs that allow us to articulate two sides of one thing.
0: Right. I mean, I could go on. All the news is bad. Kiss your dreams goodbye. I think we've brought this up on the show before. It's certainly something that I touch on in Reclaiming Art. Modern media, especially television, television in bedrooms specifically, can be construed, I think, fairly as an attempt to colonize a space that was once reserved for dreams The more news, the more media you ingest, the more either the less you dream or the more your dreams are themselves permeated with this media and all that being part of this kind of uh, phantomatic existence that we've been uh, living uh, since Hiroshima, I would argue. But anyways, though, so. I didn't notice this at all. Like, I read the lyric before we met. I was very curious to know what you thought of it. I read, I tried to find some information as to what the song meant. I've heard theories that it's about uh, the gay scene in New York. that The sad yeah. young men are, yeah, homosexuals. And you read it in that light, it's pretty touching and powerful. But of course um, it goes beyond that because it's describing as you were, saying when you were talking about your father, it's describing the modern condition. It's describing the condition of specifically young men, but the fact that it's a woman writing about men is also, I think relevant here. Yeah. And the moon, the moon as a feminine force, let's say being conjured at the end of the song as a kind of potential solace or potential escape, or it's uh, a call to a kind of archetypal, uh, uh, would Like some kind of like uh, hieros gamos, right? A kind of sacred wedding of the feminine and the masculine that would maybe would would heal this condition or lead us out of it.
1: It will not surprise you to learn that in the musical, the nervous set, the relationship between the woman who sings this song and the the man who is the sort of stand-in for Jay Landisman ends badly, and the woman commits suicide. Right. Would you be surprised to learn that?
0: No, not of anymore. <laughs>
1: of course, of course not. No. That's always the way stories like that seem to end in stories by for and of sad young men. Yeah. I yeah. realized that I realized that there's one part of the lyric I left out. So I was saying there's a little bit that melodically works almost like a tag. It sort of stands outside the 16 bar form of the what I think of as like the song Even Mm -hmm. though it's equivocal, the way it's laid out on the page, it's sort of part of it. Anyway, because of that equivocal formal aspect, I kind of forgot that there's actually a second verse for that tag as well. And I didn't read it. Autumn turns the leaves to gold, slowly dies the heart. Sad young men are growing old. That's the cruelest part. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Autumn turns the leaves to gold is actually a beautiful image. And the idea of, you know, when we talk about the autumn of life, that's sort of like saying the golden years, that's uh, almost a polite circumlocution or a, a nice way of putting it, the autumn yeah. of life. Well, autumn is beautiful. I've, who doesn't love taking a walk on a crisp autumn day through the beautiful fall color? Um, you know? Yeah?
0: No, uh, No. sorry, I don't want to interrupt. No, uh, no,
1: no. I, just, I, I don't know where I was going to go with that, but... You know, I was like, it takes that image and then it's just like dismal. That's the saddest part, you know, of the sad young men growing old.
0: Let, let's let make a connection here between this particular verse that you'd skipped the first time you read the, the lyric. Autumn turns the leaves to gold, slowly dies the heart. Sad young men are growing old. That's the cruelest part. For some reason here, I'm reminded of um, William Butler Yeats' famous poem, Sailing to Byzantium, which is, I think somehow connected here and may give us some way of tying these two songs together. Um, I'm going to read it, okay? It's not a long poem. And uh, you'll notice that a lot of the images from those two lines and probably from other parts of the lyric as well come up in this poem. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl command all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect, monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing, forever tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school, but studying monuments of its own magnificence, and therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. Here we have, I think, a very clear... It's a poem, so you can interpret it in multifarious ways. But what I'm seeing in this context is someone in this condition of aging for no reason, growing old in a world that has no redemption, growing old for no, like a world in which youth would be hailed as the only worthy state to exist in. Because there's no point in growing old in a world that has no ground, that has no telos, that has no. So he, therefore, he leaves the modern world and goes to the city of Byzantium. He leaves modernity. Hmm. O sages standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the holy fire. Pern in a, I never know if it's a gyre or gyre. Pern in a gyre? And be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal. It knows not what it is and gather me into the artifice of eternity. I love that verse. It's so cool. It's almost science fiction. It's like he wants to be taken apart like a shaman and maybe put back together in this beautiful artifice. And um, once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enameling to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. And um, this is one of my favorite poems because it is so layered and so strange. But I, th- I sense in this a little bit, for some reason, a connection, mainly in this movement from, huh, from this present where things have no essential meaning where meaning has been kind of like offloaded back to this time where the sacred is still recognized, but in this time to be remade as a kind of being of gold and, uh, and light. It's almost like a science fiction poem. It is. But for me, it speaks to this problem, right? That is no country for old men. This is the world we live in. It's not a country, it's not a world in which aging, becoming old has any value. Yeah. And that's exactly why I think the Coen brothers called their movie, No Country for Old Men. It's a a film about a world that has let go of meaning of value of, of anything. It's a nihilistic world. I think most of Cormac McCarthy's books are explorations of what it is to be in a nihilistic universe and No Country for Old Men I finally understand the title. It's about that. It's about that if you lose the ground, if you lose sight of the of that not hope as a subjective experience, but hope as a thing that exists, hope as some kind of firm ground underneath yeah. the universe. If you lose ground sight of that, feet. then the whole process of aging, suffering and dying loses all sense. And of course, the only sensible thing to do without that ground is either an actual or figurative suicide.
1: Yep. And, you know, it's interesting. I want to hold on for a second. There's, of all things, a tweet that I want to find. How do you find a tweet? Holy shit. Well, I know who tweeted it out. So if he hasn't been tweeting hyperactively, then I can maybe find... Maybe find it. Um, okay, found it. This is somebody I have no idea who this is. A history podcaster, apparently. Uh, Mike Duncan saying, just a reminder that the United States isn't quote-unquote falling apart or breaking down. It's being deliberately and purposefully wrecked. And uh, this is him responding to something else, which, frankly, I don't care enough to follow up because I don't need proof that the... United States is in a world of shit. Um, I see it every day. But um, Connor Rebush responds, you know how some venture capitalist dickheads will purchase a brand like Deadspin and then deliberately run it into the ground and sell it for parts? That's literally how they run this country. And... Mm-hmm. That was interesting to me because uh, it reminded me of something that Jeff Chang, a hip hop scholar who wrote a wonderful book called Can't Stop, Won't Stop. The history of hip hop. Chang writing about in the first chapter of that book about the Cross Bronx Expressway, which just vandalized, destroyed the heart of the Bronx and inadvertently uh, set up some of the cultural and social conditions that led to the development of hip hop. Chang is writing about the wholesale destruction of the Bronx and how destruction begat more destruction, Uh, endless rounds of arson, so many buildings in the Bronx that burned. And Chang has a great line, I'm going to butcher it, because I'm not looking up, but something like that uh, arson is the last stage of capitalism. Right. And think about it, like, uh, watch Goodfellas. I think there's a thing in there about what happens with, like, restaurant owners who get in bed with the mob is eventually they see their fucking restaurant burned down because the mob capitalizes it, they use the restaurant for their purposes, and then at a certain point, they've extracted all the value, and the only way to extract any more value is to burn it down and collect the insurance money. Mm -hmm. Chang isn't talking about that movie, but nevertheless, it's a nice example. The idea that capitalism is the ultimate expression of no country for old men. It's the ultimate expression of that. It is the expression and cause of that nihilist condition. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's all about replacing things. It's like it's the ultimate expression of a a kind of modernity that can only see value at the beginning of things and never at the end or the further development of things where the ethos is gather ye rosebuds while ye
0: may or get your kicks in while you have a chance. It's done uh, already from the start. That is the unfolding of it. But the minute yeah. the commodification happens and Marx's writings on the commodity at the beginning of capital are f- fantastic. They're, those, are, those are profound fucking insights he had. What happens when you turn one thing into a commodity is that you inevitably have turned yourself into a commodity. The minute there is one commodity, everything becomes commodified. The commodity is the atom of modern secular society. And a commodity is defined by its replaceability. I mean it's defined by the fact that its value is determined extrinsically by conditions that are not under its control or under its yeah. purview. It completely floats in, an, in a void. And so the minute you've done that to one thing, the very logical process by which you could do that one thing has already done it to everything. And therefore, yeah, you end up in that no country for old men.
1: And we are in that right now. I mean, we being those of us who are in the United States, seeing this country, as like I said, it's not breaking down. It's being stripped for parts. Right. It's the last stage of capitalism, which is arson, where you have had an extraction Oriented mindset the whole time. You know, I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, it's a mining city. I know what extraction industries do to a landscape. Oh yeah,
0: and but for the listener, uh, Sudbury when Phil was young looked like the surface of the moon, like literally, yeah.
1: yeah. Used to. I mean, it's been fixed up to a degree that I never thought possible. Guys that my dad worked with who were in the earth sciences, who spent decades of their lives trying to figure out how to reverse the acidification of the of uh, The, the landscape, yeah. And so it's kind of amazing what they've managed to do. So, hey, there's hope. Uh, but I, I've often thought the best definition of what a cult is, as opposed to a religion, is a cult is a religion that is run upon the principle of an extraction industry. Right. It's all about extracting value from adherence.
0: Yeah. It takes and from
1: you. It takes from you. Yeah. And to me, what we are seeing is what happens to a country that has been run by people who think that way. We're at a point where they're like, okay, we're running out of things to extract. Time to strip this fucker
0: for parts. Right. One gets that impression. One does. <laughs> Well, this morning I had the idea that I'd love to do a, a series. I don't know if you'd be part of this. It depends on if you, whether you feel like reading it or not. But I'd love to do something on Moby Dick. Uh, because I think that Moby Dick, more than, more than Leaves of Grass, is a fathoming of the American soul. And I think that what we're seeing now is the kind of unraveling of that. But there must be some other side. It's like, it's like my buddy, you know, it's like your dad in the dream. We have to know that hope exists. Like we can't just stop there. We can't just look at what's going on in the US, right. which is affecting the whole fucking world by the way. It's not just yeah. uh, the US's own business. I mean, uh, Canadians especially. I mean, we're, yeah, you know, as, as Trudeau it. famously said, we're like a mouse sleeping beside an elephant. Um yeah. so we're feeling it. And so but we have to if we can't actually hope, if we see no hope, we have to remember that hope exists. We have to remember that the ground is more powerful because it lies outside, beyond essence, beyond being. It is more powerful than whatever these motherfuckers can do with this world. You know, it's like Heidegger said only a God can save us now. Well, that could sound really depressing if you're an atheist. But if you're not an atheist, which you aren't deep down, admit it, um, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing to remember. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.